Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Hello, welcome back to another episode of our podcast, PMR Report. My name is Dr. Heather Norman. I'm a PGY3 here at UT Houston, and I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Cindy Ivanhoe about intrathecal baclofen therapy. Dr. Cindy Ivanhoe is the clinical professor of PM&R at McGovern Medical School at UT Health, as well as the director of a spasticity program and associated syndromes of movement. Dr. Ivanhoe also sees patients in the outpatient medical clinic at Tier Memorial Hermann Hospital. She received her medical degree at the Autonomous University of Guadalajara in Mexico and completed residency training at the University of Illinois at Chicago. There, she was chief resident. She has been named among U.S. News World and Reports Best Doctor since 2009 and Best Doctor in America since 2007. In 2016, she was recognized with the Distinguished Clinical Award by the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Dr. Ivanov delivered invited lectures nationally and internationally and has published widely on spasticity management. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Ivanhoe. Let's get started. So this morning, we have with us Dr. Cindy Ivanhoe to discuss practical overview of intrathecal baclofen therapy. Welcome. We are very happy to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so just to start, um, can you just discuss an overview of upper motor neuron syndrome? So the upper motor neuron syndrome is associated with what we call the positive signs and the negative signs. Uh, it happens when there's an injury to the central nervous system, and the positive signs are the things that are overactive. So you can see spasticity, which is an abnormal overreaction to stretch, among other things. Um, you can see dystonia, which is usually described as twisting postures, you can see apoptosis, writhing movements, and different sorts of movement disorders. Uh, and then um, you can see clonus. You can see abnormal reflexes return or pathological reflexes that you know were normal when we were infants but are not normal anymore. The negative signs of the upper motor neuron syndrome are when are basically I think of it of what's lost, weakness. You lose. You've lost strength, coordination. You can lose. Um, motor control, the ability to, um, to move more appropriately or accurately. Um, you can become in increasingly um, unable to access your own muscle control. So in a lot of ways, not entirely, but in a lot of ways, 
the I think of the physicians as we do our thing, right? Getting trying to decrease the tone so that the therapist, families, patients can do other things to try and improve that strength and the coordination and the the way that they move and the ability to have more isolated movement. In other words, people who have a lot of spasticity may not be able to move, you know, one finger without all their fingers clenching into a fist. So once you determine that patients have a promoter neuron syndrome and you think based on your assessment and experience, they do or will benefit from an intrathecal baclofen pump. How do you describe the spasticity and the whole process of the pump or the necessity of the pump to the family? Oh, well, well, sometimes it depends on what they'll say to me initially, right? When they come in and, and I'll ask them, I'll ask them why they're there, what it is that um, they find is interfering with their quality of life. But the other thing is a lot will depend on my relationship with them. Do, have I been following that patient for a while? Is it something that I introduced initially and, and now it's time to discuss it in more detail? And then sometimes I just, you know, go right for the gusto. Um, you kind of have to try to read the interaction with the patients. And, and sometimes there are patients where I've just met them and it's like five or ten minutes of talking to them and I say, hi, I want to send you to have this hockey puck or a can of skull implanted in your abdomen. Um, and that does not make for, you know, usually a really great first interaction. So what I do talk about is how their spasticity is affecting them, how that muscle tightness is limiting them, what may or may not happen if we don't intervene. What I will tell a lot of patients is that an intrathecal baclofen pump, whether it's the pump from Medtronic or the pump from Flowonics, is the best, most dramatic way I have of impacting their spasticity, particularly lower extremity and, and trunk. And we'll talk about the process. And the process is I see them, I assess them. If they are interested in pursuing it, we'll do a baclofen pump trial which is an opportunity for patients and families to see what a pump may be able to do for them if their tone is decreased. And they'll come in for a trial. Before the trial, we'll do assessments uh, with therapists, and I'll do my own kind of in my head. And then um, uh, usually within a couple of days, they will get lower spine in their intrathecal dates. And that gives us an opportunity about four hours after that injection to see what happens with their tone. In other words, does that spasticity or hypertonicity decrease? So we'll do those measurements again that were done before the trial. We'll look at them doing something functionally, such as um, walking if that's if they are able to, transferring, rolling in bed, sitting up, brushing their hair, different things to get an idea of what the functional implications can be. It is always really important, I think, for me to explain to people that when they go through a baclofen pump trial, it's just, it's for a yes or no, I respond to this to this intervention. It isn't about what grade of response they'll have later. It's yes or no, I have a response. Because the other stuff comes later. The what's the right dose, um, a lot of people will get very weak. They'll think they're weak because we took away their spasticity, and that's what they're used to using to move. But that's a really positive trial. So I'll very often use the analogy of you may stand up during your baclofen trial and be a wet noodle and feel like you're going to collapse, and that was a really super positive 
trial and don't let that scare you. So if, if I present it that way when I'm first discussing an ITB pump with them, then they're not so frightened when they go through the baffleton pump trial. Um, if, there's, if they're really interested, you know, I'll explain more about what the whole process is and how that works. But in terms of um, having a baffleton pump trial, it gives them an opportunity that is very reassuring, I think, to most of them about I, at least I get to see if this is something I really want before I, you know, marry Dr. Ivanhoe and the Baclofen pump and have to come for refills. I thought it was a really long answer to a question. <laughs> it was a very good answer. That was actually my second question, so I'm glad you already heard yeah. it. So another question, too. So outside of physiatry and PM&R, people who are more aware of having these trials in inpatient rehab, mm -hmm. would a patient be able to get a trial in an acute care setting? And if there is no physiatrist available, are there other specialties that could also assist? That's a really good question. Uh, there are not enough physiatrists to go around, my bias. Um, and uh, some pain physicians, neurologists, um, tend to be the other specialties that are more likely to, to manage a baclofen pump. I think we all see it through our own lenses. Um, I look at a baclofen pump in terms of what does this mean for quality of life? What does this mean in terms of where I refer that patient for therapy after they get their pump? Do I need to use other interventions such as botulinum toxins in conjunction with the pump? I, d I tend to look at it from that, that perspective. Um, what will it do to this bladder and their bowel and their transfers? Other specialties may have somewhat of a different bent in terms of how they, they look at it. Some people, I've seen physicians who just look at the patient and go, well, you're spastic and you need a pump, but they don't pull in all those other aspects of managing the care because it's just not their specialty. Um, there are neurologists who do neurorehabilitation who uh, sometimes look at things very similarly to how I look at it. Um, fortunately, over the years, I've seen a lot of patients who have gotten referred to me because their pumps, quote, didn't work, and it turns out that they got the pump put in, and then there was never follow-up, and the doses weren't changed, and all the other things that go with having a neurologic injury were not addressed. And if you go into this thinking that, if a patient goes into this thinking that getting the pump is going to fix everything, they're going to be sorrowfully disappointed, because that's not what it's for. And you had mentioned in your presentation, too, about weaning off oral medications prior to the trial to kind of get a better assessment. And I feel like, from what I've seen, every physician kind of has their own way of doing that. Is there any way, a generalized plan of what you would recommend to wean off orals uh, prior to a trial to make sure you get an accurate response? Yeah, I, I you know, a lot of physicians don't change them. Um, and... And I think that leaves you with an increased risk of a complication during the trial, and it also gives you um, less of an opportunity to see what that pump could mean for a patient in terms of coming off oral drugs. Um, so in the brain injury patients, we can generally wean them fairly easily because they're not necessarily that helpful. Um, I saw a patient just this week who had had um, a pump a long time ago, really bad um, brain infections and sinus infections, all kinds of things. So all the hardware in his body had to be taken out. And he came to me uh, from El Paso on very, very high doses of three antispasmolytics. And 
And so I wrote out for his mom uh, a weaning schedule. It was fairly slow, particularly with the baclofen, because you can't, if you wean it too quickly at very high doses, your patients can have seizures orally or intrathecally. But, um, and she's amazed because now he's communicating with her. He's not really verbal, but he communicates more. He's more alert. He's moving more because he's not so sedated. Um, so, in, in terms of getting people off the, the oral medications, the spinal cord patients, it's a little harder um, to do. So, what I will generally do is tell patients, let's here's a weaning schedule, and let's wean your medication as much as you can. And if you get to a point where you can't tolerate having it weaned anymore, just stop there. You know, stop at the level where you can tolerate it the most. In patients who have multiple sclerosis, when you're um, considering a baclofen pump, if they're on oral medications and they're still interested in a baclofen pump, because they have underlying weakness, not necessarily related to their spasticity, um, what I'll often do is try to get them off their oral medications because it, it complicates the interpretation of the trial, right? You, you might be looking at a patient in terms of, if you get this pump, you may not need all those drugs. You can't really help them determine that if they're still on the drugs when, um, when they have their pump trial. I'm not sure that, that was really clear. But the, it's partly because of the weakness. So if you're comparing a relatively low dose of oral baclofen and you want to compare that to an intrathecal pump, um, you'll get a better sense or gestalt of what's going to be possible if you can have them come off the oral meds. Most patients do pretty well coming off the oral medications, um, again, less in the spinal cord population. And for, again, for physicians who are not familiar with pumps and pump trials, mm -hmm. what would be a positive response from a trial or a yes or no? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and when the FDA originally approved these therapies in, in the spinal cord population, it was a two-point drop in an Ashworth score. Uh, now we look at modified Ashworth scores. We look at TARDU scales. We look at how people move. I look at range of motion. So ultimately, those were recommendations specifically for a study, okay, for FDA approval. The FDA asks a question, and the manufacturer, the pharmaceutical company, what have you, is going to create studies to try and answer those questions. So um, the it, it's important to not divest ourselves of being clinicians and practicing the art of medicine as well. So you might look at an Ashworth score where the patient is actually contracted and you can tell that during the baclofen trial because everything else gets loose but one particular ankle it's going to not change the scoring necessarily so it's it, those, those sorts of things that we look at you know that we can document because we love to have things fit into boxes um, we can document scores but i think it's really important to to have a narrative uh, description of what it will mean if we decrease this tone for this particular patient, not just your Ashworth score got better or you got 20 degrees of elbow flexion that you didn't have before, or elbow extension that you didn't have before. It's, it's more, I, I like to look at it as we got more improvement in the quality of your movement in your legs and you may be able to walk or you're already an ambulator, but now because you can bend your knee and your ankle and your hip, you're less likely to age and have arthritic changes in that joint. 
you know, it's trying to, to give it a context that's that's more functional, that's the physiatrist in me, more functional um, and, and more useful for the patient, for an insurer, for a family to understand what this means. It's not just your scores changed. If your scores change, I mean, and they usually will, which probably means I haven't tried enough people, but um, if your scores change, it's it's easy, it's clear, yes, you have that documentation, but that doesn't, you know, I have a colleague who always says, patients don't come to me and complain that my ASHRA scores are too high. Patients come to you and say, I can't get my foot on the floor in the car, but, or, you know, I'm on too many drugs to be awake and go to my kid's play. Those are the kinds of things that I think we need to pay attention to and give that context for our patients and their families and the companies that are going to pay for the therapy. What is the time frame between the trial and the pump placement? And in that interim, would they would you be able to increase their oral medications to until they can get the pump placed? Well, I'm never going to be a speaker for oral medications because <laughs> uh, if they need to go back up on their oral meds, sure. Um, I get more questions about anticoagulation, but, uh, you know, it depends. Un unfortunately, you know, we practice medicine based on when we can get coverage. Now we, we practice medicine based on when you can get a potentially elective procedure under COVID. So the, all those things come into play. We may practice medicine based on what's your deductible this year and can you afford to get your pump, which is, you know, I think, I think, unfortunate for our patients very often. Um, there have been times with inpatients where um, I will say to the case manager, you know, we're going to have the trial on this date. I know it's going to be a positive trial, and I'll talk to the neurosurgeon or the, or the physiatrist who puts in pumps for me and say, I know it's going to be positive. Please plan that it's going to happen so that it can happen more smoothly. That's particularly with patients who are inpatient in the hospital and they're going to transfer from TIRR to somewhere else to get their pump placed. Um, so that makes it sometimes a little bit easier. I, I wish there was like a, um, a magic equation that I could use and say X, Y, and Z is going to happen, but it doesn't work that way. For patients who are outpatients, usually by at a trial, if they have a positive trial, they're already mostly convinced by that point. But there are patients who aren't convinced at that point or aren't sure that they want to, to go ahead with this. Um, different patient populations, too, have different responses. So it, it's going to depend on, again, insurance clearance, now COVID, the surgeon's schedule, um, a host of different issues. If they need to go back on their oral meds, as I said, they can. Um, if a patient is somebody who is on um, blood thinners, anticoagulants, what have you, um, depending on the reason, I also will try to have that done in a more timely um, fashion so that they don't have to be off those meds for very long. The hardest patients in terms of anticoagulation are people who have mechanical heart valves because generally we're not going to take them off. And generally, a surgeon's not going to want to, you know, muck around in your spinal cord when you can bleed there. So when a patient gets admitted on the acute side for some other medical need, and they notice that they have a pump, mm -hmm. what indications would warrant a need for removal besides what you said prior about, you know, an infection where they just need to remove everything? 
Yeah, I think that's the, the main one, unless there's a problem with the pump or the catheter that needs a revision. Uh, and there are certainly possibilities of things going, you know, wrong. You know, I've, I've often said I once had a microwave spontaneously explode in my kitchen. I haven't had a baclofen pump spontaneously explode in a patient. But, um, you know, the catheter can have issues. The pump can malfunction. Um, and, and that's true of, you know, any either company's pump or catheter. Um, so that would be a reason. Other than that, um, off the top of my head, I can't really think of a good reason to remove one unless it's not functioning or the patient no longer needs it for some reason. But you wouldn't just go from having an intrathecal baclofen pump to pulling it out if you really don't have to because you need to wean the, the baclofen. And what modalities would you recommend be ordered to assess for catheter or pump malfunction? So... You know, the first step is always interrogating the pump. You put the computer, the programmer over the pump. You get back information from the pump about what the dose is, about um, when the next refill is, about the life of the battery uh, in the pump. But the problem is it will tell you that the drug is being delivered. It will not tell you if the drug is being delivered to the wrong place. Okay, so I have seen that happen where pay somebody because the question is whether or not the pump problem and, you know, they're told, well, you're, you know, you have, this is your alarm date and everything's fine and here's the volume. It's not reading the volume that's actually in the pump. It's reading the calculated volume and it's not telling you where that drug is going. So if the catheter is not in the intrathecal space, um, it could be going anywhere. So that is one problem. There are other troubleshooting mechanisms to consider um, if you think that, that there is a problem, if it's whether it's an overdose or an underdose or um, when, when there have been problems to date, um, they tend to have been uh, with the catheter. And well, the reason I say to date is the Medtronic pump has been around for um, probably about 25 years or more. Uh, the Floonics pump is newer in this country, in Europe. It's been around for about eight years, but for spasticity in this country, it's only been around for a few months. So we don't have the same um, length of experience. And there are differences between the two pumps and the two catheters. Um, in terms of other troubleshooting issues in a different setting, you know, the biggest issue in an acute setting where they may not necessarily be managing um, pumps because it is an underutilized um, therapy, I think. Um, you know, the, the bigger issue is always going to be, is my patient going to withdraw? That, that's the most frightening, potential, um, dangerous scenario. Um, and sometimes there have been patients where there's a concern about withdrawal where you can put an intrathecal catheter in, ignore the pump, and deliver the medication in an acute setting if, if the patient actually is really, truly withdrawing. That's one way to handle it. The oral baclofen is helpful, but if somebody's withdrawing, you really want to start it as soon as possible, or there's a whole chain of events that can be unleashed. Um, if, if we're all really responsible about... Um, the considerations as you get more clinical acumen in dealing with this therapy, it, you know, hopefully you can avoid those scenarios. And my last question, for rising physiatrists in residency, 
What is one thing that you think they must know about ITB pumps prior to graduating? One thing? Um, you, can do, you can do a few. It's okay. <laughs> well, I, I can be a little hyper-verbose. Um, I think the one thing, or the main thing to start with, is to not make this a therapy where you lose time for your patients trying all the other things, just thinking that, you know, this is the last option, because it isn't. And in many cases, it's the best first option um, to have our patients try. You, you know, and, and it's sort of like a car in that it's a lot's going to depend how we represent it, right? If I represent this to a patient as, yes, it, it has pluses and minuses, but if you want to move your leg better, transfer better, the sooner we do this, the better, that's going to be different from what one of my colleagues would say, which is, oh, I don't know if you really want to do this. You know, you have to have a device implanted. You'll have to get the pump refilled. Things can go wrong. Um, who do you think is going to sell more pumps to patients? You know, it, it's how we, we, you know, but I believe in this. I'm not just doing it. I don't have stock in these companies. You know, I, I, I do this because it's the most beneficial way of managing tone for a lot of my patients. So I think that's one thing. Don't consider this the last resort. Don't toxin and motor point block people to death before you do this. This is a, a one shot, you know, you, you give them maybe a year and you get them to a really good place and hopefully it's, it makes a big difference for them. I've had a lot of patients. I'll come back to your question though, I promise. But I've had a lot of patients and I've done this a long time where um, they may have a complication. They may need to get their catheter revised or they may need to have their pumps exchanged out because they don't have, they don't live forever. They have batteries. Um, but I have only had a handful of patients ever not want to continue having their pump, even if they've had a problem. And I think that speaks a lot to what this therapy can do for people. The other thing I would say is don't be scared coming out if you're going to go somewhere and you please don't send me another email, but text me um, to help people, to help guide people through uh, what it takes to make a program be successful. Um, but understand what this can do for a person's life. And I know I have this saying that I've used a lot over the years, which is would good enough be good enough for you? If it were you or your family member, you know, it is, would you just want to be left alone the way you are? I've had so many patients be told, oh, this is as good as you can be, and you should just be glad you survived your stroke or your trauma and, you know, have a nice life where it doesn't have to be like that. Is there any other last parting words of advice you'd like to oh, give? Uh, probably my Ivanhoeisms, my, <laughs> my uh, Ivanhoe's pet peeve. No, I, I, I think that. It is sad to me how underutilized this therapy is. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. It, it takes a village. You don't just put a pump in a patient and you're done. It takes some management skills. But it can also be incredibly rewarding. And also, I guess one more last thing is it's not just the pump. It's um, how you use that pump with the therapies, with potentially a botulinum toxins, um, with the right orthotics and the right approach to therapy, etc. Oh, always a pleasure talking to you. Me too. Always a pleasure. Hope to work with you again soon. Thanks for joining.
joining us. Bye. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.